Let's turn together now to Psalm 34. This will be our passage today for our sermon. Psalm 34, beginning in verse 1. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble fear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days, that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to you now. We thank you for your word. We pray that you would now make it effective in our lives, instruct our hearts and minds through your spirit's power and presence, illumine our hearts. Show us wonderful things from your law, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the Psalms have been a source of great comfort for people throughout the ages, especially a psalm like this one. There's a lot of comfort from these words. It's filled with words that magnify God. And frankly, that's where we have to start with comfort because there's little comfort in words if God isn't who He is. If He's not all-powerful, if He's not in control, if He's not good, if He's not loving, then words of comfort are just platitudes. And so we have to start with magnifying God, with bringing Him up close so we can examine Him, which is exactly what God's Word does. Like looking through a telescope, we see something up close and we can examine it. And I don't mean by that that God is far away. We know that He is a present help in time of trouble, that He's close to the brokenhearted. And yet we also speak of His transcendence, His otherness, His holiness, And we cannot know that apart from his word. And so we need his help. We need his word like this psalm to bring him ever closer so that we can know him. And so that's why David says in verse 3, Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. He's giving us as readers the opportunity to join with him, to join the chorus. This is the way 
that it's supposed to be. It's one of the reasons why we hate so much not being together, because there is something unique about corporate worship, not just in our singing, but as we pray with one voice, as we read Scripture together, as we confess what we believe, as well as listen to the sermon. All of this together as one is something that we're called to do and desire to do and look forward to when we can do it together again. Words, though, are, they help us. They help us understand who God is, but they also help us express what we believe about God, about the great things that He has done, about who He is, about how wonderful He is. And at times, yes, we run out of words, but we don't stop trying because the expression, oh, magnify the Lord with me, describes what we do when we gather in worship that glorifies God. It is a testimony to others. It helps others to hear the confession, the corporateness of that voice, the chorus of that. And it also helps us. It reorients us to the truth. It's a call to then taste and see that the Lord is good. This resonates over and over again that we have to come back again and again and re-experience this because we forget. We are so easily enamored by things in this world, or we're so easily overcome by fear and anxiety that we need to be invited back again and again to taste and to see that the Lord is good. As the psalm goes on, we're reminded that it's often in trouble and distress, more so than in comfort and ease, that we discover the goodness of God, that we're made aware of it. It's not that we don't know that it's true when everything's going well in life. We just get numb. If you think back to a week ago, to two weeks ago, can you imagine, could you have imagined, did you imagine that things would be as they are today? I don't think any of us could have. This is a time that is so unique. It's, it's like we're in some kind of alternate universe. It feels like the twilight zone because nothing really makes sense. We've never been through something quite like this. Well, thankfully, not every moment is that way. There are good things. There are enjoyable moments. I think the rest from the frenetic pace that we keep as a society is a welcome reprieve for many. I think that the time together with family, especially those who are in the stage of life where everybody's going in different directions or everything is just busy all the time, that this has been a sweet gift. I think for others to spend time doing something that you enjoy or that you haven't been able to do in a long time... um, Now is the time to do it, and it's kind of a gift as well. These are things in the midst of this craziness that we can be grateful for, and we should be grateful for. But we also have to admit that this is also a time where fear creeps in. And for some of us more than others, fear creeps deeply in. For some, it's the fear of contracting the virus, becoming sick, Uh, We see this virus is something that we know very little about. It's affecting the entire world. The news is revealing things every day. We live in a time, too, when we don't really know what to believe either. And I think that makes it harder because we hear bits and pieces of information and even wonder if they're true. So sometimes we spend time worrying about things that aren't even true. For others... The fear is the, uh, the idea that they might carry it to someone unknowingly uh, and unintentionally give it to them. That's a, a real fear for many. For some, the fear is financial, the fallout 
what has happened to savings or retirement, wondering what the future holds. Some of you are in retirement right now and wondering, is there going to be enough now because of what has happened? For others, your job is on the line, and you know that uh, you may not have it very soon. And so you wonder how you will pay the bills when all the dust settles. All of us have made plans that have been canceled. All of us have faced disappointment of things that we've wanted to do that are now no longer possible. We could make a list that goes on and on and on. What we need to recognize is that this time is incredibly fertile ground for fear to creep into our lives in a way that is ungodly and unhealthy. And it begins to grip us to the point that we become despondent or depressed or feeling hopeless. And this is where we need help. It's why we need to hear from God's word. It's why we need to seek his spirit's guidance, to hear it, to read it, to meditate on it. And it's why Psalm 34 is such good medicine for us in the days ahead. All of God's word is, let me say that, God's word is good for the soul. So don't waste this extra time that we all have. Make good use of it. Spend time. Use some of the time to spend in God's word. Use some of the time praying, not just for your own needs, but for the needs of others. Make good use of this time. I want to mention a couple things about the psalm generally that will help us appreciate it. One is that uh, if you look in your Bible, if the title is there, the title tells you something about it. One, that it's a psalm of David but also indicates that this happened or this was written in the context of a particular event. And I won't go in uh, because for the sake of time now, and since we all have this extra time, you can take some time this afternoon and read in 1 Samuel 21 the narrative of what occurred here. But the gist of it was David was taken captive and he faked being insane to escape from captivity. And as important as that is to know that that's the context in which this was written, I want to make especially clear that David is clear that it was not his creativity in coming up with this idea or his shrewdness in faking insanity, but it was only by the mighty hand of God that he was delivered. In verse 4, he says, The Lord delivered me from all my fears. And later on, the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. David knew from where his help came from. And so I want us to remember that and keep that in mind. The other thing I want us to keep in mind is how the psalm was written. It was written as a Hebrew acrostic. So each letter of the Hebrew alphabet, uh, a line was written that corresponds with that letter. And you can understand why this is beneficial if you've ever played the group game where you go around and You know, Tom went to the market with an apple, a banana, a carrot, and then it comes to you and you say, donut. And then, you know, it keeps on going. And you remember based on your memory of the alphabet that we know the alphabet so well, it actually becomes a tool to memorize other things. And so this was David's intention of writing the psalm in this way. And unfortunately, we don't know Hebrew, so it doesn't help us in committing it to memory, but it emphasizes the importance of committing God's word to memory so that we know it. In Deuteronomy 11.18, God instructed his people on the importance of knowing and remembering the law that he had given them. He said to the people, You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. 
See, God was instructing them on the importance of his word in all of life. That's what that descriptive is. Unfortunately, the rabbis came along later and they took this literally and they said, no, what this means is you take little pieces of the Torah and roll it up in tiny scrolls and put it in boxes with leather straps and you strap them to your hands and to your forehead. They're called phylacteries and you may see uh, Orthodox Jews practice this tradition. While it's not sinful to do that, it totally misses the point. We do not receive God's word through osmosis, but rather the word of God is to be taken in to our hearts. He says, lay up in your heart. He means commit it to memory. He means what we would say is take it to heart. Commit it to yourself. Bring it in deep. Let it work its way through your mind and your heart to affect all of your life. To bind it as a sign on your hand means that God's word should um, guide every movement of our hand. And again, this isn't literal like only our hands, but our hands are our primary means of doing things. But it's our whole bodies that God's word should be taken in so that it uh, guides everything we do, that we do everything in accordance with his word. And then frontlets between your eyes. It's almost as if Spectacles had um, you know, Ben Franklin supposedly invented those, and that was a few years later. So it's almost this idea that they're being described here, frontlets, something that sits between your eyes that serves as a lens. God's word is a lens through which we see the world, through which we interpret all of life, and through which we understand how we are to live. And so we are to know God's word. It's an incredible gift, not only to tell us how we must be saved, but it shows us how to live, how to live. How It tells us about all of life, about our relationships, about our occupations, about our recreations and our entertainment. God's word speaks to everything in terms of the general decisions that we make in life. And so David has written this in a way that the people could take it and commit it to memory and use it as they faced crises in life. One commentator noted that this was an ABC of crisis. In other words, it was a, uh, a tool uh, for, for memory to be used in a time of crisis. The psalm can be seen in two parts. The first 10 verses focuses on David's testimony of God's salvation. And then we'll look at 11 to 22, which focuses uh, more on the instruction that he gives of how practically to apply the wisdom uh, that he's learned through this experience. But he begins with his profession of continual praise. May the praise be ever before me, which is his way of saying, I can't praise God enough. I can't talk about it enough. I can't sing about it enough for all that he's done for me. He knew who his deliverer was. He wasn't misguided to think that somehow he had achieved this as if he was a really smart guy. And the boasting that he speaks about in verse 2 is boasting in God, not boasting in himself. It's echoed in Galatians 6.14 where Paul writes, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's where we boast. When you have been saved from something from which you could not save yourself, you will know and you will desire to boast in the one who has delivered you from such a thing. You want to make much of the one who has delivered you. 
I remember being in Israel on a trip. I was leading a group, and I we were at a, a friend's house there, and he asked when we were done in the evening, did I need him to lead us back to the hotel or if I could find my way back? And I told him I was comfortable, I knew where to go, and we were staying at that point, we were staying in Bethlehem, which, as you probably understand, is in what we call the West Bank, the Palestinian Authority. So we had to go through a border and, and, and so forth. And as we were going, as we as we came over the top of the hill before the border, we we saw uh, military police people everywhere, just a huge mass of people completely blocking the road. And as we approached the one directing traffic, uh, and having grown up in a small, fairly small southern town, you know, it, there you might be tempted to pull up and roll down the window and say, excuse me, officer, I just need to go right there. And if you've ever been in the Middle East, you know that's not an option. And so I followed his direction and turned. And as, as soon as I turned, I had no idea where I was. This was before GPS. and I wouldn't have been able to follow the GPS anyway because of the language difference. So we uh, thought I could navigate sort of around and get to where we needed to go. But before long, I realized I was lost. And I was horribly lost because I had no one to communicate with except by phone. And even then, I couldn't tell them where I was. All I could do was describe. And there was very little around. It was dark. It was late at night. And so I called my friend and told him the situation. He felt helpless. I've got all these people with me, guests that we've brought along on a tour. Uh, I feel the pressure. Uh, It was just incredibly, I felt so lost. I didn't know how to solve the problem. I didn't know how to get us back to our hotel. Soon he called me back and said, uh, I I think that Danny Awad, who was a a Palestinian pastor uh, at the little Presbyterian church there in Bethlehem, I think he 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 can get to you. So he called me, asked me a lot of questions. He finally said, I think I know where you are. Hang on. And in about 10 or 15 minutes, he pulled up next to our van and said, follow me. And he led us back to the hotel. Everywhere we've gone since, and I've seen Danny a number of times, and I always tell this story because I'm still incredibly thankful that he delivered me, that he saved me. It wasn't just about me wanting to get back to the hotel. I was responsible for all these people, and so I felt incredibly lost, and he saved me. And so I wanted to tell other people about it, and I think I annoyed him uh, in telling so many people. You want to make much of the one who has delivered you. And this is why David then says in verse 3, magnify the Lord with me. Eugene Peterson in his paraphrase says it this way, join me in spreading the news. Together, let's get the word out. It is a corporate activity that we're invited into. And then in the next stanza, David describes the saving work of the Lord in verses 4 to 7. He says, I sought the Lord. This is David's way of describing prayer. He sought the Lord in prayer. He went to Him in prayer, seeking His help, seeking His deliverance. And this is what we are to do as believers. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, what we read together this morning. And the promise then that comes right after that, that command, be anxious for nothing, in everything, go to God with it in prayer, let your supplications be made known to God, don't be anxious, don't be anxious, don't be anxious. And then the promise that comes after the peace that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. David says, Similar thing when he mentions the same command. He answered me and delivered me from all of my fears. Now, fear can be a tricky thing. 
Because in Scripture, we're told to fear God and we're told to fear not. Over and over, we're told to fear God and over and over, we're told to fear not. And so does Scripture contradict itself? Well, no, we have to understand that there are different types of fear and there are different objects of fear. And this is true in, in all realms. You know, we know that when we're consoling a child who's worried about an imaginary boogeyman, we're dealing with an element of fear that's very different than if that child, you know, comes and says that there's, you know, a, a snarling dog in the front yard that's trying to bite them. Those are two different categories that we're dealing with. And so for the sake of categories, we can talk about wise fear and unwise fear. Wise fear would be fearing God, knowing that He is holy and just, knowing that He is all-knowing and all-powerful, knowing that He made all things and that He holds all things together is a reason to fear Him. And I would say that that is even logical, not even necessarily just biblical. If you went to an atheist and said, imagine with me for a moment a being who is holy and just and all-knowing and all-powerful and made all things and holds all things together, is it reasonable to fear such a being? Anyone with any amount of logic would say, of course, because they clearly hold all the power. And so there is a reverent fear in that sense. David talked about the power of this kind of fear. He says, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And so we see how a wise fear, a godly fear, actually dispels the unwise fear, the ungodly fear. It emboldens us to live with courage. So unwise fear, what is that? Well, what David just described. Partially, it's a fear of man, a fear of man in general. Um, we can struggle with this in terms of being not only captured by a fear of man, wanting people to like us, wanting people to approve of us. We can actually allow those things to control us, to limit us. Uh, that would be unwise fear. There is an element of fear that serves us well. Uh, it protects us. And we talk about the snarling dog. Um, we think of, you know, the rattlesnake rattle when we're walking in the woods. It is a reminder to you know, stop and move away, move in a different direction because of the fear. If we're in the, the pool and the lightning storms that are so prevalent here in Florida come, we know we need to get out of the water. There's, there's a, a, a wisdom in that fear and it serves to protect us. Unwise fear, however, neglects that God is in control. And we become fearful over things that we have no control over. That's how it becomes unwise. So when we neglect the sovereignty of God, we forget that and we begin to focus on things, even things that we have no control over. A good indicator of when unwise fear has crept in is when we begin experiencing all the what-ifs. When all the what-ifs get stacked up and we begin experiencing more and more of those, it's often an indicator, often an indicator that we have gotten gripped by unwise fear. And so we need to ask ourselves when we become fearful, when it begins, is this fear pleasing to God? Does it magnify God? Does it please God? Is it a wise fear? A wise fear would be if we face temptation and we were afraid of dishonoring God and we stopped 
That would be wise fear. Unwise fear would be neglecting God's sovereignty and thinking about what ifs and sitting in our home and afraid to go out because we think a, a, a plane could land on our head. That's unwise fear, something that's outside of our control and focusing on things. Knowing the difference requires wisdom. Knowing the difference requires incredible wisdom to be able to discern. There isn't just a simple formula uh, to understand uh, how this works. We, we, ha- we are dependent on God's Spirit to give us the wisdom um, to know what is a wise fear and what is an unwise fear. And His Word is there to help us. This idea of fear continues in the next stanza. In verses 8 to 10, He says in verse 9, Fear the Lord, you His saints, for those who fear Him have no lack. Don't be afraid of what other people think of you or don't let their uh, approval or disapproval control you because you fear God. In other words, not only your situation, but your destiny is in His hands. Sinclair Ferguson writes, The wisdom of this world sees time is long and eternity is short. Man is big and God is small. It crucifies Jesus rather than worships, worships Him. Inevitably, therefore, it clashes with the wisdom that comes down from above. Don't be so short-sighted. Don't become so fixated and filled with anxiety because of a virus or the fall in a stock market or a, a, your job or anything about the future because you think that, that this is all that matters. Yes, these things are significant. They do matter. They weigh on us. They're important things. But they don't determine our lives, and they certainly don't determine our destiny. There is a much bigger story that is unfolding that God is doing than what is immediately before us. And for all who fear God, it says there will be no lack. There are promises to us that are greater, that we are to hold on, that are to be treasured far more than the worries and concerns of this moment. God will finish the work that He has begun. He will provide for all of your needs according to His riches and glory, even if you can't see how He's going to do it in the moment. Hold on to Him. Trust Him. Be anxious for nothing. In the second part of the psalm, verses 11-22, He gives us the wise counsel from His experience. He says, He invites us, Come, O children, listen to Me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Now, lest you think He's being pejorative here and uh, calling us children and inviting us here, let me remind you what Jesus said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, humility is essential in the fear of the Lord, which leads to wisdom. Humility is essential in the fear of the Lord, which leads to wisdom. He is God. We are not. It's childlike in the best sense of the word that we're called to here. And so David invites us in and he gives us the question which could be expressed like, who doesn't want to live a long life and live life to the fullest? We're drawn in because this is something that everyone wants. And so now he's got our attention. And then he drops what seems like a really strange command, almost like something that's out of place. Like, where was David going here? He says, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. And we stop and we think, wait, we thought we were talking about crisis and adversity and facing and what does my tongue have to do with all of that? Well, you don't have to read very much through wisdom literature and scripture to know that there's a lot in the wisdom literature. 
Proverbs, Psalms, Ecclesiastes, these Old Testament books, as well as what is often called the wisdom literature in the New Testament, the book of James, there's a lot to be said both about the tongue and about being at peace or making peace. Well, what is the connection? Part of it has to do with how we handle the crisis. And we can see evidence of that in our own culture and how we've responded to this particular crisis, the psychology of the crisis, what's being played out as a result of this pandemic. If we consider just our speech and our peacemaking, for example, think about this. In the last seven days, think of all that's unfolded. How different would things look at the national level, at the local level, even in our own lives, like right here in my own heart, if I took to heart James 1.19, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. How different would this past week have looked if our leaders had taken this to heart? If people on Facebook and journalists in the media had all been quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry. Or think about how the crisis would have looked if we had applied James 3.17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. I mean, this is the antithesis in many ways of what we have seen unfold. Proverbs 1, 7, in the opening book, in the opening words of the, of the Proverbs, the teacher instructs us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This is what J, or, uh, David is telling us here in Psalm 34. It's the be- fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. And as we walk in the fear of the Lord, we grow in wisdom. As we walk in the fear of the Lord, we grow in wisdom and we become quick to listen slow to speak. And the fruit of our lives then becomes a harvest of righteousness that is sown in peace. You see, I don't want to just give you words of comfort. I do. I don't want to just do that. I don't want to just tell you that everything's going to be okay or tell you not to be anxious. But I want you to see that these times are an opportunity for there to be a harvest of righteousness that is sown in peace in your life because you fear God in these moments. And I don't mean fear like a scaredy cat. I mean the biblical, wise, God-honoring fear of the respect of the one who made all things and holds all things together in his hand. David says, when we do this, we will be radiant that our face will never be ashamed. So don't propagate fear by repeating things that you don't know are true. Don't forward things or post things that you don't know are true and, and, and propagate the fear that is out there. Don't wallow in anxiety, fretting over things that you have no control over. If you don't have control over it, if you're just getting all the what if question, what if questions in your mind, go to God in prayer and cast all your cares on him, knowing that he cares for you. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything through through with thanksgiving, through prayer and supplication. Let your requests be made known to God. Go to him with them. Don't hoard things that aren't necessary out of fear. Don't be willing to fight with others over the last loaf of bread or toilet paper or milk or whatever it is that's coming off the shelf. Instead of anxiety and fear running our day, cry out to God. Because what David says in verse 17 is true. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all of their trouble. Trust him instead. 
of holding on to your fear of the unknown. Why? So you won't get the coronavirus? Well, no, that's not what's promised here. In fact, in verse 19, we see many are the afflictions of the righteous. Every one of us is going to face adversities. It may not be this virus. It may be the result of it, or you know, we're all kind of facing that. It may be something else. All of us are going to face adversity. None of us are promised a pain-free life. But the promise that follows this is what we hold on to. The Lord delivers him out of them all. Eternity is long. This present life is short. Don't ever get those things flipped around. David closes out the psalm in speaking of God's saving and preserving power. It isn't that he allows us to avoid the afflictions. No, he carries us through the afflictions. He delivers us on the other side of the afflictions, and he keeps us intact even when we feel like we're coming undone. In verse 20, we read, He keeps all of His bones, not one of them is broken. This speaks of God's preservation of us when we feel like the pressure is so great, it's going to shatter all of our bones. God promises to keep us intact. And I can't help but think of the crucifixion account in John 19. Since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another Scripture says, They will look on him whom they have pierced. It's quite possible that John had uh, other passages in mind, like uh, Exodus 12 or Numbers 9, which speak of the Passover lamb having no broken bones. But still, it, he might have been recalling Psalm 34. This, this certainly speaks or hints at that, what would come on the cross, that God redeems those who are his own by making them righteous. That's what the cross accomplished. And so you need to remember that in this time, that you are not your own, that you have been bought with a price, that you belong to Him, that He has redeemed you, and He has not redeemed you in vain. So let that grip your heart instead of the fear. You have nothing to fear. No one and nothing can disconnect you from God. Nothing can sever you from the bond, that covenant bond, that promise-kept bond, that He never breaks His promises And he holds on to you by that bond. No virus, no stock market plunge, no quarantines. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He will carry us through. And this is why David can say in the very last verse, The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, take your word and plant it deep within us to give us courage in this time that we would not be fearful. Take away our anxiety and bring us back to see you magnified before us that we would trust in you, knowing who you are and the great things that you have done, knowing that you keep all of your promises, 
knowing that you hold all things together, knowing that you work all things together for good. And as these promises that we repeat over and over to ourselves and to one another seep down more deeply, may we cling more strongly to Christ. We pray all of this in his mighty name. Amen.